It's a special edition of this week's Emerging Cricket Podcast with Tim, Nick and myself all in the same room for the first time in a very, very long time. We talk Cricket World Cup League 2, Under-19s Women's T20 World Cup qualifying, the Kabuka Tournament, Namibia versus Hong Kong, and we answer questions from our Patreon patrons and punters from around the world. Now, if you're an exclusive Patreon subscriber with Emerging Cricket, you get access to this podcast first, and you also had dibs of the questions for our mailbag this week. If you want to join our lovely Emerging Cricket patrons, you can do so from as little as $2 a month by helping the cause and becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash Emerging Cricket. As always, plenty to talk about, and this week, an extended show. Welcome again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. There are people in front of me and not on a Zoom screen. Uh, very pleased to have both Tim Cutler and Nick Skinner in, well, at my dining table at the moment, talking all things Emerging Cricket. We've got everyone back in the same place. It's a pretty special moment. When was the last time we caught up the courthouse in the inner west, 2000, was it last year or the year before? Just before I left. Just, so, just before yeah, Tim April. left. So, look, this doesn't happen every so often. How are we all doing, fellas? I'm just looking as we're rearranging our rigs and Nick almost, you know, loses a great northern bottle to the world. How, how, are, we, how are we all sponsor? doing? Who wants to kick off? Well, I'll start since you're kind of looking at me and talking to him. Um, <laughs> great to be here. Um, yeah, I'm at uh, the end of week two of, of three of a jaunt up the east coast of Australia. Six days in Brisbane, four in Melbourne, and now sort of halfway through time in Sydney. Very good to be here. Was able to surprise my dad for his 70th mm. on the weekend, which was great. And also tied in nicely with two close friends' 40th. One that was Saturday just gone and another this weekend coming. So a little bit of work tied around that as well. But um, it's uh, bloody freezing here in Australia. I think I've, I've genuinely acclimatized or acclimated, as uh, seems to be the uh, uh, the way to describe these uh, in Vanuatu to tell just how cold I've been. But um, yeah, I've had to buy a lot of new clothes. I arrived with um, empty suitcases and I've <laughs> kind of handed over many Pacific pesos and uh, <laughs> I've come out with Some Hawaiian shirts <laughs> yeah I didn't bring any Hawaiian shirts <laughs> not even of the Vanuatu cricket variety no well there'll be good news coming there with our new apparel It'll be very very Vanuatu but no very happy to be here Daniel how are you good when I saw you walk through the front door you did look like one of the commuters had just you know jumped off a, a Sydney train such as the the warm clothing in his little vest and, and long sleeve shirt looking ever so professional it is very, very strange. And you knew that Tim was enjoying his time away because we've barely heard a word out of him for the last two weeks. So he's clearly been enjoying his time. What was your dad's reaction like uh, upon the, the surprise? I'm guessing he would have been imagining that you'd be sending a video message of some description from a dodgy Vanuatu bar and instead you're uh, in front of his, his merry eyes. I don't know what you think of me, Bess. I'm just sitting in bars all the time. No, my dad is still quite analogue, so I don't think he thinks in those terms and was imagining the, the video session that he'd have from people who couldn't make it. But I was a little later than I wanted to be, which meant he was sitting down. I think they'd finished the first course and I think I went up behind him and made some, you know, family joke. I think it just, and he turned around and there was, you know, just... 
genuine joy and surprise on his face, which was good. And there were a couple of people around the table that said, uh, oh, I thought you might be coming. I thought, I was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> Nobody knew. Well, <laughs> apart, apart from the people that knew, you didn't know. You okay, didn't know. But no, it was good. And, and now that he knows I'm here, I can actually make time to go and see him as opposed to trying to plan that before he knew I was coming. But uh, no, it was good. It wasn't really a rowdy 70th. It was just a, a nice lunch at the Como Hotel and then uh, back to my uncle's place because my dad's a, a twin, so uh, fraternal twin. My uncle was taller than me, no longer, but uh, dad's always been shorter. Um, but uh, no, it was a no, really good afternoon. Uh, great Sunday. It was good to catch up with uh, with family as well. Now, after this podcast drops this week on the Friday, we're hanging out again on the Sunday, probably going to be a little bit more rowdy than we are tonight, although we are, you know, it's been a long time between drinks, let's put it that way. So we're trying to make the most of the time. But for you two, Tim and Nick, you guys will be catching up as well overseas when there's Challenge League around the corner for both Canada and Vanuatu. Two lubs, obviously one an employee, one just a diehard tragic that just watches his you know, his team unfortunately be more of a love-hate relationship. More often than not on the wrong end of the result. Uh, a la World Cricket League 2 2019. And 2018 and, yeah. and, 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 and. You're sorting out your visas for your travel as well. You've got some tentative dates lined up, Nick. It's been a, a busy week for you, I imagine. Also coming off the uh, dreaded spicy cough too. Thing, things are going on. You're rocking your, your Winnipeg Jets mm-hmm. NHL jacket there as well. Well and truly Canadian getting that jibe in before Challenge League cricket around the corner. Uh, well, I mean, the Jets actually made the playoffs last season. Uh, so hopefully Canada can um, continue performing in a, in a similar vein at Challenge League. But uh, yes, looking forward to uh, flying over, visiting Nate, good friend of, uh, of Emerging Cricket, Nate Hayes. One of the all-time yeah. greats. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get to uh, some, some minor league cricket, got some minor league baseball lined up, oh. a lot of fun activities in uh, in North Carolina there, so that'll be great. And then, uh, yeah, flying up to Toronto with meeting up with Tim. Be like us in Namibia, kind of sharing <laughs> hotel rooms or sleeping on floors or recording in kitchens. It'll just be like old times. No streets named after dictators, I hope, unlike in another part of the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favourite photos in Namibia is when Tim and I went on an expedition and just just stumbled across Mugabe Robert Mugabe Avenue, Road. just just Castro just, Road, just chilling there. Shout out! Come on, I'm not giving that man a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Mugabe Avenue, you reckon? Challenge League. The other half of Challenge League starting this week as well on the 17th. Uh, looking yeah. forward to that in in Uganda at the Chamborgo Ground. I know that Jersey, I think, are playing a warm up as we're recording today. So I'm sure you guys will be looking at that with a keen interest. But we'll start today with Cricket World Cup. League 2. Once again, we saw another tie in the competition between USA and Nepal. I don't know if the USA lost that game or Nepal managed to get something out of that game, but either way, they they take a point each from that particular match. As we're recording, Oman have one match left. They'll either have 44 or 46 points in the bank as the clubhouse leader in Cricket World Cup League 2. I think we'll probably talk about it in a second, but I think that'll be enough for a top three spot. Whether or not they finish first, second or third, it remains to be seen. There's a lot going on here. Musa Stadium again hosting the rest of the matches. The Nepali fan base have been electric in their support. Poor PJ Hoodles was uh, outnumbered, I think, one to a thousand there, but... uh, I think his Hawaiian shirts and American board shorts and quick info signs for Peter Della Pena, I think more than made up for just his solitary presence. But it's been a good atmosphere there. It's been some enjoyable cricket. I know we mentioned 
last week and probably the week before as well, the matches have been finishing at, at 9am in the morning Sydney time and we've been seeing, yeah, a few back-ended matches. I think it was on a Sunday morning when I was watching that USA-Nepal finish and I couldn't quite believe it. Mohamed Adil uh, Alams made a, a name for himself with a performance on ODI debut, making a, uh, a few runs with the bat and then taking three for with the ball and, and finishing off at the end with the ball to ensure that they didn't get nothing out of that game. A few kind of constant themes. Stephen Taylor made a big 100 in that game as well. Uh, probably a little bit disappointed. I think it was 114 and I still felt he gave it away hitting a ball into the deep. What's our position here? I think one of the big stories is, is probably Oman finishing their campaign now, looking to finish on a high. I'm not sure who wants to jump in first and, and talk about it, but it's, it's a little bit strange just the way that the draws kind of panned out. Oman playing all their fixtures and kind of waiting in the wings to see how everyone goes. Where do they kind of think that their campaign went well and went not so well? And, and what do you think it'll be like for them to kind of look for the next year watching on? Yeah, it is an interesting one, isn't it? But as we joked before coming on, it's uh, runs on the board. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those teams behind them need to chase them down here. We don't have the, the beauty of a synchronised last round of World Cricket League Championship where everyone's playing the same time on, on different grounds. And that's what happens when you've got, got seven teams, I guess, that are playing in tri tri-series but oh, look, I don't think you can blame the ICC here I think you know without COVID this wasn't going to happen yeah and we saw well also without Sultan dying and without it raining in the UAE and various other things Scotland just being cursed in general yeah exactly um, you know it brings a I guess another element to the event where you've got you know a lot of teams with similar win-loss percentages but because of the numbers of games they've played it looks a little skewed on the on the scoreboard or on the on the points table so yeah look in a perfect world, we wouldn't be in this situation, but the fact that we got to a point where at least one of the teams is, is going to finish their allotted matches, I think that's a lot better than we thought it was going to be at one stage. I think at one stage we thought they might be going down the, the win percentage route and we might see teams not finishing, and look, we haven't got there yet. Namibia and Nepal still only played, at the time of us recording this, 14 matches out of 36. So there's still a lot of cricket to be played, and I just I hope we don't get to a point where perhaps some of those teams can't get into the top three and the ICC decide to uh, cancel those those series because it just makes no sense from a, a finishing point of view. But yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it, to see a team that's finished all of their matches you know, as of this week and you know, there's, there are at least two sides out there that uh, have, have played less than half. Yeah, I mean, you'd think if the teams continue at this level of uh, win-loss, you know, win one, lose one, as they've been doing throughout the whole tournament, I don't think we will get to a situation where any of the series will be meaningless because, you know, everyone, if they continue in this trajectory, they'll all have something to play for. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, looking at the matches that have been played in the USA, yeah, that tie against Nepal, they um, it was <laughs> a very exciting finish. PDP's calling was, was great, blasting our ear- eardrums out with the... Uh, when the microphones are working. Well, yeah, that was... The other thing, the uh, uh, the more technical difficulties, as has unfortunately been a uh, a feature of this tournament, but a theme, I think, yeah, yeah. recurring theme, yeah, very much recurring. But um, yeah, I mean, I, you would say the USA just absolutely squandered that position. They were one for two hundred and twenty-four after forty-one overs, which you know, when you're chasing 
275 that's they need 50 runs in nine overs with nine wickets in hand that, that that's that's a doddle you know that that's unforgivable not winning that um but yeah good good innings from taylor i think you're being a bit unfair you know 114 he's done his job the other 10 guys between them should be able to manage to get over the line but yeah as you say yeah adil alarm pretty handy start to his odi career 36 off 24 and then a couple of wickets to to peg things back though that last over they were, they were trying to sort of flick it across the line every ball and yeah. It was strange. Wasn't they it? they kept getting. I don't know. They, they were, it just seemed like they were stuck in a bit of a rut there, and they they just they had that one shot that they were looking to kind of go for, and and they just couldn't look past it. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a bit of a sort of talking point almost when you need sort of five or six off the last over. It can kind of be psychologically a bit trickier than needing you know maybe ten or fifteen because yeah. you know if you need that you know you just go. Whereas if oh yeah we can do it in singles, then you kind of get bogged down a bit and and bit sort of then then you get a bit. Yeah, playing missed, and you get a bit desperate and sort of chasing it. So, yeah, it was it was exciting, but um, I mean, realistically, the USA should not have been dropping a point there. Um, I think in the other games, yeah, I mean, USA and Oman traded wins. Monank Patel and Sushant Modani both scored tons to pile on eight for three hundred and twenty-three before Ali Khan took five for twenty. Uh, with four bolds, uh, wiped out the towel, dismissed Oman for 209, um, and, and then uh, cashed out Prajapati in the second match between them. 103 took Oman to four for 280, and the USA fell 13 short. And that was a, a great stat from PDP. The USA have never actually won a match when their opponent scored a century, uh, which is kind of a, a problem for them. Aaron Jones, 97, just missed out on his, his first ODI ton. Uh, and, and Zishan Maksud, 4 for 39, always finding a way to contribute. And uh, yeah, he scored a ton against uh, Nepal as well. So the captain still got it for Oman. I was just thinking back to the tied match and just running through the scorecard and almost recollecting what happened. It was It was quite funny that I think it was Aaron Jones, wasn't it, caught at the end there. He managed to pick out the only fielder in the deep because Sandeep actually had had the one fielder out just for the catch. And I made a mention of it on, on Twitter this week and talking about Sandeep's captaincy. And yes, he is very young and very raw, but it seemed as if he applied a few of the lessons that he's learned so far in his international career slowly. I mean... The USA didn't hit a boundary in the last five overs in that innings, which, again, you could probably make the case for, you know, surely if you get one away, there's a bit of momentum. But Musa seems a very tricky place to get in on, especially at the end, you know, 90, 95, 100 overs into a game, looking reasonably slow. And Sandip just took a little while, just slowed things down. The last five overs took a very long time. I don't know what the overrate situation would have been in that regard. And the way that Muhammad Adil Alam bowled was to a strict plan. He tried to bowl wide Yorkers. He almost cost them with wide. He actually bowled a no ball there at the end. A free hit wasn't put away. And yeah, all of a sudden, the way that Nepal plays, they just like it's like kids doing their homework on the night before it's due. They just like to seem <laughs> seem to do things as as late as possible. It was a great catch by Podell in the deep, and then the run out between I think it was current KC and Dependra Singh Ari just it, absolutely chaotic, but it's just everything that we, we see in, in it's almost uh, it completely encapsulates what Nepali cricket's about, really, in, in some respects. And we do seem to talk about it every week. But yeah, what what a great result. You can't say that Nepal lack entertainment in this competition. Oman, as we said, by the time you listen to this, they're going to be done and dusted. Maybe just one word, I suppose, on the USA team. I mean, Ali Khan's five-wicket haul. I didn't think he would come back and finish his 
spell and look to get the five wickets because he was visibly exhausted in the heat of Texas to come back and, and to finish with a five wicket haul by far and away a spearhead of that attack but we know that everyone you know with the ball does a, a pretty good job for the USA but then when you look to the batting Stephen Taylor making runs, Monank Patel making runs, Aaron Jones making runs, Jaskaran Malhotra's not even available at the moment, and they've got the likes of Sai Mukamala and Rahul Jarawala coming into the team, the two young kids who are products of minor league cricket, and I'm sure we'll see them in major league cricket down the line. Have they finally found the depth that it would take to sort of be the next heavyweight at this level? I'm not sure which of you boys want to sort of take this question without notice, but I mean, it just seems as if they've got 50 players and if they were to you know miss out on having the likes of Monet Patel in the team or Aaron Jones or even someone like Gajanan Singh has a little bit of experience from a different part of the world in the Caribbean as well it just seems that they can piece together a decent 11 no matter who's sort of in or out and we're starting to see the pieces of minor league cricket again deliver a, a stronger overall USA squad one that could potentially go to the next level if they were to finish in the top three go to the qualifier and pose maybe a bit more of a threat than USA teams of times gone past yeah Stephen Taylor makes a huge difference at the top there and just having a guy who can go hard early and, and make the most of the I mean especially in this uh you know these conditions at, at Pearland where there's there are runs on offer early um, and it does get a little bit trickier as, as the match goes on and and just a you know he's just he's looked so good in this series hasn't he? he's been so much more confident and and he he just looked really out of sorts over the last few years but um him scoring runs at the top just makes it a little takes a bit of pressure off the rest of them and and sort of gives guys like Monang Patel uh, a bit of time to get their eye in and, and, and then go hard later on so yeah Stephen Taylor is is crucial to this lineup but yeah as you say they've, they've found a bit of depth yeah I don't know I mean where's Malhotra come in you know it's a pretty good problem to have you know who how do you fit him in yeah and Monang obviously taking the gloves and leading the side as captain you have Saurabh Nechavalka as an ex-captain there who I'm sure is helping out in in some regards so to use I suppose some American chat they're covering all bases there the Americans and I think with Nepal I think the jury of the tri-series is probably still out given they've got two matches left to play in this particular series as we are recording and to be honest I don't think we should probably make too much of a judgment until they do finish the series but to look at, at say Oman and, and USA and to look at the table in general Oman as we said 35 matches in 44 points on the board I think again to reiterate that's enough to finish in the top three not 100% sure where they'll sort of finish by the back end Scotland 20 matches 28 points UAE 22 matches 26 points so slightly uh, worse points per match ratio than someone like Scotland. USA, 23 matches, 21 points. Namibia, 14 matches, 14 points. Nepal still have some catching up to do, but both ne- Namibia and Nepal have a lot of home series left. The only team really who are, who are out of the race are, are PNG, and they'll be forced to go through the playoff to go back into the Korea World Cup qualifier through playing against the, the Challenge League winners as well. So does anyone want to stick their neck out and then pick a top three at this point? It's probably still a little bit too early. Yeah. But to close off that point, to not be hearing about scandals within the USA squad, to hear nothing about any conversations about salaries being increased or decreased it just feels like there's a little bit more stability there which is strange to say when USA Cricket have lost their CEO recently and and Richard Doan is sort of covering many roles and the litigious nature of of USA Cricket and USA in general has meant that he's been kept busy with various other things as well outside of cricket so that's good to see and the fact that 
they are picking players that are coming through the minor league. And, you know, we've heard Nate talk about it and write about it. You know, you've got these young kids who are products of the USA system coming through and getting those chances is just great for USA cricket's future. And we're not even talking about players that are coming in professionally to play minor league and major league and then qualifying three years down the line. These are kids that are coming through them actually having a, a national league for really the, the first time ever. So that's good to see. Um, and let's not forget that you know, it's one thing, the top three, which will get those teams automatic entry to walk up qualifier. But, you know, that that's, I, I guess we can say PNG are going to be last, but that six, uh, the battle for sixth position is actually important as well because if you're fourth or fifth, you can't be relegated from League Two. You can only be relegated if you're sixth and seventh and then you finish behind the, the Challenge League teams in the, the World Cup qualifier playoffs. So there's still a lot to play for in the, the middle of that table, which will mean, I guess, that the likes of Nepal and Namibia, once they get a few more games under their belt, they're also going to be fighting for that, not only looking at third place. But I'm going to say Scotland, Oman, UAE. <laughs> I'm oh, just Six for the top three. Yeah. The existing top three, yeah. But I've repositioned Scotland to first place, and USA were close to getting UAE there. I, you know, do we get all the games in, and USA having this home stretch, can they, little stretch of home games, can they get a few wins ahead of the UAE? But I, I just, I've been really impressed with the way UAE have come out of the scandal of 2019 to be the squad that they are, oh. and they've got young players coming through as well that we talk about all the time. So they're in a similar position, you know, similar but different. They don't have a billion dollar uh, investment in in their local cricket for their their leagues and and facilities but the talent that's coming through we're seeing in under 19's team and also in the senior team i think they're good enough to stay in third place oh geez uh well i mean i i i guess i my heart says i want namibia in that top three i i mean i can see a pathway for them to to knock off the uae i think scotland and oman are definitely uh, in, in that top three i don't see scotland you know taking their foot off the accelerator now and, and oman obviously with 44 46 points it's going to be very hard to overtake and I, I don't really see a pathway for three other teams to to get more points so i, I think realistically Oman, Scotland, and one of the others. So let's say Namibia pips UAE, uh, UAE in fourth. Although, yeah, U- U- USA, yeah, they're looking good too. So, geez, yeah, it's it's tough. It's so exciting. And just going back to that that point that we we keep making, though, you know, the fact that the, the race for first place is meaningless is very disappointing. And given there is so much, um, you know, quality in in all of these teams, and any one of them could potentially overtake Oman. We'll talk about some of that. We're answering some of the punters and patrons' questions a little bit later on, so this will probably get a bit more of a mention there. I was really hoping one of you would provide a, a thoroughly convincing case for me to sort of copy homework and, and pick a top three here. I think I think Oman and Scotland are, are there. Oh, Scotland aren't there, but they're as, as close to there as, as you would like. I, I think it's a three-way... Oh, no, it's, even it's tough, now looking it? at it, it's, I can't. I can't tell you. I, I'm gonna say, I don't know. I don't know. I'm gonna. I'll, I might rule out Nepal for the time being, and I might root it to say that I think it'll be a three-way race between UAE, USA, and Namibia. And I'm gonna. I think I might go the Tim route and stick with the top three that, that's currently there. I think that. It's going to be very, very tough for Namibia to do the catching up and play a lot of games back to back to back, even if they are at home. And it's just the way that the the draws sort of panned out. It's going to be a miracle that we're going to finish this competition in the first place with everyone hopefully playing 36 matches, just given the situation of of COVID and, and how it sort of 
it, it opened this tournament completely apart. And the cruel thing is with Super League effectively ending after this cycle, we'll never get the chance to see how the ecosystem of international cricket works in a world where we're unaffected by the things that have been largely outside of cricket's control over the last three years. And again, we'll talk about that in greater depth. But yeah, I'm going to stick to the the top three at the moment, just with uh, the proverbial runs on the board. Let's quickly wrap up the under-19s Cricket World Cup Asia competition just with the results coming through at the end of the record last week uh de facto final as we see with a lot of these icc run qualifier events icc tournaments uae taking on thailand for the top gong and it was uae once again continuing their dream run in international cricket when you put it all together talking about the men's international team qualifying for a t20 world cup doing well in league two the under 19 men's team winning the plate at the recent under 19 cricket world cup in the west indies now the women's team qualifying for the inaugural under 19 t20 world cup next year in south africa completes what's been an incredible two years or so for uae cricket in the context of of everything around defeating Thailand who were previously undefeated going into that match so it was the the two clear best sides of the competition a few a few names in UAE cricket making a name for themselves Thailand once again there thereabouts but ultimately it's it's UAE who get the spot and uh, one of the first qualified teams to uh, next year's tournament who didn't have a spot already as a as an automatic qualifier. Yeah, Thailand posted uh, eight for eighty four after their twenty overs, and the UAE chased it down with six wickets in hand and in seventeen point one overs. So pretty comfortable win all up. The Thai spin armada um, were were very tidy throughout the middle overs, but they they couldn't quite put enough of the the, the squeeze on, and they they didn't have enough runs on the board. And that's been a, a bit of a kind of an Achilles heel for the Thai senior team as well. You know, it's just the fact that. They're able to to bowl very well, but they don't quite have the batting depth. And yeah, Fanita Maya for Thailand was the only one who who really got going. Whereas the UAE have um, just so much talent. Uh, you know, you're looking looking down the batting order. It was Tirta Satish, Samara Danadaka. You know, they've they've both played a lot of senior cricket already for the UAE, and they're definitely the future of of UAE women's cricket. And where does this leave Thailand? Is kind of the question because you know, do they have the depth coming through? And I, I guess like looking at the bowling side, you you would say they probably do. But in terms of batting, yeah, who's who's coming through that's going to replace people like Sonar and Tipok and and Nataya Butchatam and, and and those the sort of golden generation down the line. I do wonder if this is a little bit to do with the the Thai wickets, you know, back home in Thailand, which can be uh, a bit tricky to bat on and, and they don't necessarily get the same level of practice. Whereas in, in the UAE, there's a lot of just really good quality tracks that, that these players can practice on. And I guess it does make a difference in, in terms of players' techniques. And, and um, w- this is kind of a, a recurring issue with associate cricket. It's just the fact that, um, you know, it's tricky sometimes if, if the you know the pitches you're playing on at home aren't very good it's difficult to get that sort of long-term batting technique um that you need to to really perform at this level um so some questions for thailand but uh yeah hopefully they they find enough talent coming through to to replace the 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 current generation yeah it's a unicorn the way that thailand built their cricket from where it was to where it is now and you're hoping that yeah someone takes the baton and and carries it forward into the next generation it would be an awful shame if there was such progress made only for it to kind of fall away in some regard but we know the organization's relatively strong and 
the system is is there but as you say you are a product of your environment at times right in, especially on the batting side where you end up carrying the the habits and the tendencies of the wickets that are put out for you on a on a domestic basis and that's what we're probably seeing in in the likes of Nepali cricket not just the fact that you know there's poor wickets it's the fact that they're not playing enough cricket at that level full stop at least you know, for the likes of UAE and, and Thailand and, and looking towards somewhere like Bahrain who have recently upped and put together a, a women's league as well for, for their cricketers, that's the platform. That's where you kind of build a, a team who are, are ready to go to that next level and it only you need just that experience just at under-19 international level, senior, senior international level, just to blood the talent. And just looking at, at some of the stats, particularly on the batting side, you know, UAE were largely reliant on the likes of Satish and Kenny, but at least, you know, with the ball, they were pretty much sold around. We saw Elsa Hunter again um, for Malaysia chiming in with some runs. But then if you look at, at the likes of Meyer and, and Lee Patana for, for Thailand, putting their hand up with the bat, Chai Han as well, Jaturan Gratana. So there are, you know, individually, everyone it's sort of chimed in. And, you know, as we've mentioned, I think last week, there are, you know, the likes of, of Meyer and others have played international cricket at the senior level for Thailand already. So just to kind of wrap it up, I mean, this is this is the hotbed. This is what's next for, for the region. And I think you can kind of make a prediction for, say, you know, three to five years down the line, both Thailand and UAE are going to be the pioneers of, of the women's game at, at senior level. And, you know, there's every chance that those two teams head-to-head will be giving each other the best practice and the best preparation for then going on to playing in, in global tournaments and stuff like that. So again, to look at, at someone like Nepal, for example, you know, a, a team who probably aren't where they want to be at this stage, you would like to think that this tournament shows you the blueprint of what you need to do to take cricket to the next level. Again, it's just a question of, you know, are the right people actually watching what's going on before putting it into motion and actually seeing something on the field so yeah we we wait again to to see all of that happening but again congratulations to to uae for for qualifying and being a part of the under 19 the inaugural under 19 t20 world cup next year in south africa just before we move on just really we're so used to uh lamenting certain decisions but just shows how great this decision by the ICC was to bring in under yeah. women's yeah. World Cup, yeah. meaning that you know every two years this will will happen again. You know, with the men and women alternating every year, and we we know how great the men's version has been. So you know, about time, yes, but it's it's great to see. And I know from a Vanuatu point of view, you know, we we didn't get accepted to the the EAP qualifier because we didn't have enough teams playing enough cricket. You know, you've got to reach a certain threshold, and re- I was really disappointed for us because you know this is a huge carrot and incentive for for kids to get into the game to know that you can represent your country at this age and it's great to see this on the women's side and everything you talked about from a Thailand point of view to see what they're building and, and how and in which conditions you know hopefully in two years time when we have this conversation again they'll have had a chance to play in well you never know they may host the qualifier but to play in foreign conditions again and they've, they've played overseas tours and we start to see them build outside of just home conditions but just overall it's great to see this concept come to life. 
yeah, just having that limelight for five minutes, just to be able to say, look, we've got a team representing our country at an under-19 World Cup, to be able to take that to the general public. And so many of the development programs around the world are are through schools, and that's how a lot of these players are introduced to the game for the first time. And it's the same as we talk about with Olympic participation and and cricket being back in the Olympics, hopefully, at some point. That's the, the one big question that so many parents ask of kids going into sport. Is this sport in the Olympics? Is this a you know viable future for budding cricketers in the country? And something like the Under-19 World Cup will certainly help with that. Let's move to Kwabuka. Awkwardly, roughly halfway through the tournament uh, as we record here. So we can only really talk about a couple of the early trends in Rwanda. Again, one of the great tournaments in the associate world. Gahunga again uh, showcasing some of the, the best African cricket and with a couple of external visitors namely Brazil and Germany who have found it a little bit difficult in African conditions Germany at this point winless in four attempts uh, Brazil two and two but sitting in sixth place on net run rate behind the hosts Tanzania four from four doing the early running Nigeria and Kenya with three wins apiece Nick again Kubuka once again showcasing the talent in the African region and to go back to, say, the under-19 chat we just had before, I think it's a nine-team tournament for one place yeah. through the Africa region for the under-19 Women's World Cup, which just goes to show just how strong it is in the area at the moment. Uganda, we put as the early favourites for this tournament. They've found it a little bit tricky early on, Tanzania doing the early running. Yeah, Tanzania back. Uh, they won the 2019 edition. Uh, then they were not participating in 2021 obviously 2020 uh was was cancelled due to uh the pandemic what what was it cancelled sorry oh yeah it was just uh, a sort of disease i don't know some for a strange strange thing uh- <laughs> monkey pox no, I, I shouldn't joke about this <laughs> oh, don't start on that <laughs> we just had one um <laughs> But yeah, uh, Tanzania um, coming back uh, after yeah skipping a year and uh, looking like they might. I don't know if you can really call it defending your title if you if you don't uh, you know if you, if you skip a year. But uh, coming back and looking very strong. But uh, yeah, uh, very interesting to see. Yeah, Brazil. We we talked about this. Brazil and Germany coming across a region and and sort of measuring how they go against the African sides. And it's interesting that they're struggling a bit. And it says a lot about the strength of the African region. The fact that you know Nigeria and Rwanda who are both kind of traditionally middle of the pack in Africa, they've both beaten Brazil and Germany pretty comfortably. And, you know, Brazil beat Germany pretty comfortably. And, you know, G- Germany's clear next best team after Scotland and Netherlands in terms of European associates. Um, and obviously Brazil is is almost on a level pegging with the USA. They're, they're a little bit behind, but they're struggling too. So clearly the, the strength is there in the African region. And um, I, I guess it kind of raises the point that, you know, why don't we have more slots in the Women's World Cups for, well, for, for T20 and for 50 over cricket? You know, the, because we have so many teams that have obviously got the quality to, to compete. And this is Africa without Zimbabwe, without Namibia. So they're still missing a couple of teams that would, would make the tournament even stronger. But yeah, Germany, I don't know. They, they've just been getting bogged down, haven't they? Christina Goff looks okay at the top, but, but they're just pretty flimsy with the bat and just a little bit sloppy in the field as well, you know, turning you know, ones into twos, you know, with misfields and, and kind of a, a few too many wides. They're just uh, missing a bit of discipline that you would expect for a sort of challenging associate team. Uh, Uganda, yeah, as you said, we, we thought they'd be um, up there having beaten Nepal in Nepal, but then this goes back to the point about the strength of the region, you know, the fact that Uganda, who are 
at the moment, sort of middle middle of the table, they are beating Nepal. And I guess we've already talked a bit about um, Nepal's struggles on the women's side of things. Um, but uh, yeah, Patricia Malamikia uh, topping the wickets tally as we speak for Uganda uh, with, with 10 wickets. So bowling is still their strength. and They still struggle a little bit to, to, to get scores on the board. Whereas Kenya um, uh, sort of don't, don't really do much, just randomly turn up to these tournaments and uh, and start winning. Uh, it's just classic Kenya. Quintor Abel with four sixes uh, uh, has more than anyone else combined. Um, so, so she's been helping their batting. Tanzania, as we say, Fatima Kibasu batting well. Uh, she's been part of the spine of their batting for, for a little while now. Poor old Botswana, still struggling. They are probably one of the weaker teams in, in the African region. But yeah, Rwanda, again, looking good. And um, they're, they're going from strength to strength. And, you know, you would say that having so many tournaments being hosted in Rwanda has, has been good for their cricket. And, and it's allowed the exposure in the sort of the home market. And, and also uh, they've got a secondary ground, which has been recently renovated. So they're, they're going well on the facility side of things. Uh, tall Eric, Dusa Bamengu, the uh, long-term servant of the game used to used to open the batting for Rwanda on the men's side of things uh, he's moved on to umpiring uh, he's uh, he lives up to his name um, basically uh, the tallest person I've ever seen including the, the man's wingspan is incredible I caught maybe five minutes of the stream the other day and he he, he got the arms out and just... calling a wide uh, wider than the pitch <laughs> could he fly yeah. he might be able to fly yeah so yeah good good to see tall Eric uh, still giving back to the game as well so yeah fantastic tournament and you know as as we've mentioned before, you know this is what sport, you know, is all about. You know, it's 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 a tournament marking the um, the Rwandan genocide, and and it's part of a kind of broader sports effort uh, where the the country you know remembers and and tries to kind of find healing through sport. And and this is this is why we love the game. Kibasu uh, was also a member of the Spirit during fair break and didn't quite get a chance to to showcase her skills with the bat. Made a duck, I think, in her only innings, and then didn't get a chance to bat in the other games. But just looking at her career numbers, you know, her T20I average is still above 50, and she's approaching a thousand T20I runs. And I think that's more of a testament, really, to just how much cricket there is being played in the African region for women's cricketers. It's as we said before, it's it's certainly a region that's seen enormous growth over the last five uh, years, especially since we've been doing this, you know, reporting on the game every every week. And someone like Abel uh, for Kenya, who's made 100 runs at the tournament in the four matches thus far, at a strike rate of over 110. As you said, Nick, hitting four sixes, just to have that unique strength is just something that brings something a little bit different to the game. And one of the things we praise women's international cricket at times for is the way that they can still produce and post decent scores without hitting the big boundary so to have that that x factor of someone who can clear the rope is something to behold and yeah you're quite right about someone like christina goff for germany carries such weight with the bat for germany you really don't want someone you know playing such a a pivotal role you really want the efforts and and the load to be shared around a a number of different players so again uh it's been fantastic to to see and and to showcase the game in the african region and to have you know the likes of of brazil and and germany there you know can only improve their cricket being able to tour and to play in a different part of the world they know each other many of the players know each other so well now after the fair break tournament we'll talk about that a little bit more we've got a couple of questions as we said coming in from a few people so we'll talk about fair break and its role in, in the international cricket sphere yeah, but again all praise for for a tournament of this nature let's move on uh some more cricket in africa uh with hong kong traveling to namibia this series started before we recorded last week but i think 
this series has just shown the development of the game at the the elite level for both teams basically since World Cricket League 2 in Namibia and it's just a cruel indictment of of what can happen when things go pear-shaped at at such an important tournament with such bearing on it in regards to say one day international status and ICC funding and Namibia sort of pulling away at the moment in limited overs cricket as as we see here you know death taxes and JJ Smith 61 not out off 30 balls two wickets and two catches thank you very much you know the man just continually performs and he's coming back obviously after his personal bereavement as well so he's done really well to, to come back from that but Again, a lot of cricket for Namibia. They've jam-packed the schedule for, you know, the summer in the build-up for both Cricket World Cup League 2 and for a T20 World Cup coming up. They hosted Uganda as well. They've put all the tools together. They've just come off winning the Associate Performance of the Year after the T20 World Cup as well. It all seems pretty hunky-dory in Namibia for the Namibians. Again, you've got to ask, you know, just how well this team is playing at the moment. And with a few home series coming up and them needing to put runs on the board for Cricket World Cup, league two they're just passing every single test the namibians on on their way to an, another big 12 months of international cricket on both white ball formats yeah i mean looking at the results um namibia just a class above hong kong really five for 332 plays 267 and then nine for 280 plays 118 and then hong kong posted seven for 224 and which namibia chased down inside 39 overs with, with seven wickets to spare. So uh, three very comfortable victories. Um, I, th- I think, you know, looking at, at the batting especially, that was more of the story, the fact that they keep finding, um, you know, Van Lingen contributed. Green was back batting pretty decently. Uh, he'd been pretty out of form over the last little while and, and had a bit of an injury niggle. Um, but yeah, Lowen Lawrence, 250s and a century in, in three matches. Great series for him. He just looked so fluid at the crease and that ton especially. Uh, he was hitting it down the ground really well. Some lovely square drives as well. Just some really nice, you know, straight bat shots as well as, uh, you know, putting away the bad balls of which there were quite a lot. Unfortunately, um, you know, the Hong Kong pace attack really looked pretty hittable they weren't hitting their lines uh, but they weren't particularly quick either they, they just were kind of just there or thereabouts and, and being yeah the, the Namibians were good enough to take advantage of it um, I, yeah looking I guess Nizakat got one score as Azkan was okay bowling his offies Pasco uh, the, the left arm spinner was pretty tidy but uh, yeah who's who's going to stand up for them Tim? That's a good question and to see the, the changing names in the squad you know it's interesting to see the likes of uh, IS Shukla and Adit Gurawara who are both young juniors come through the Hong Kong system and the underage squads at the Hong Kong Cricket Club and, and Kowloon respectively to come in and be given a chance is great and you know, unfortunately Ayush would have been part of that attack that you said looked quite hittable but to see a, a young guy still in his teens being given this chance is great um, and Adit opening the batting and also as a wicketkeeper you know it can be a very very valuable player there but on the flip side it I guess as this old old spinner looks uh, looks on to see two left arm spinners who uh, have been brought into the side. First one is Yasim Murtasar, who has been in Hong Kong since late 2016 and had been playing first class cricket in Pakistan from when he was 17 years old before he moved over to be a pro player for the Pakistan Association Club and has now made Hong Kong his home as qualified. You know, through the the residency eligibility criteria for for Hong Kong, and he was you know looking at the numbers and his hitting ability seemed to be Hong Kong's perhaps you know best player or at least showing the most 
potential there and you know from the first time I saw him arrive and play against him I thought this guy would be great once he qualifies <laughs> for, for Hong Kong he was just you know when you just come against professional players that just know how to uh, manage an innings no nonsense no panic uh, and he's still only young he's still only just I think just over 30 years old so if he decides to hang around you know hopefully there's an almost you know 10 years left of him because he's you know pretty repeatable easy action and just seems quite quite fit overall sort of short Darren Lemony kind of build and then the other left arm spinner to come in is uh, Dan Pascoe and uh, some may remember him from the T20 Blitz he's being famous because of his uh, his handgun celebration when he took a wicket for the um, Galaxy Gladiators Land Tower which was Kumar Sangakara's team but uh, his is an interesting story Um, if you go and click on quick info to see his history he's played first class cricket um, in the university system in the UK he moved to Hong Kong he's a law professor and has tenure at one of the universities there and specialises in the death penalty in Southeast Asia. And so he plays for Kowloon Cricket Club and has his entire time there. And he was giving gung signals as a celebration. <laughs> yeah, there, there were elements of irony there that I think got lost and people didn't really ask about it. But I'd, I'd, he's a bit of a rare cat sometimes and it's you don't need to bring these things up because the conversation may go a lot longer than you hoped. Uh, but for him to come into the side too. Uh, I was sure he was older than me, but he's still only 39. But again, left arm spinner, batted well down the order. You know, the game where Hong Kong batted first and got 224, he ended up with 32 off 36. Very capable, not not very fashionable. You could say you might look on the screen, but very, very effective. And not in the sense that he's a slogger. He's just someone who turns a strike over, runs well, and, and again, a consummate pro. So on balance, you'd say that will be a benefit for the team. But like you mentioned with Nazakit, and you didn't even mention him, but Bubba scoring a, a 50 in the first game. Well, and well, it's interesting to see him back, but I think he got injured in the last match. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Retired hurt for 35 in the, in the last match is, is not good. But it's just those combinations, you know, Azaz, the part that he plays and where he bats from, he can bat anywhere from one to nine. Uh, Haruna Shard, similar. Esan Khan, surprisingly ineffective in this three-match series. You know, he, he's your banker in the team with the ball that you expect he can bowl 10 overs and go for less than 40 and, and take a couple of wickets. So to see him not doing that, I don't know whether the years are getting the better of him because he's uh, he's probably the eldest out there for Hong Kong, but he's still he's a, he's a fighter. So with the amount of cricket the Hong Kong side have coming into uh, Challenge League and then, of course, the World Cup qualifier uh, afterwards, the T20 World Cup qualifier in Zimbabwe, that this, this squad has a lot, a lot of cricket. So I'll be intrigued to see how it changes through the 50-over format and then into the 2020. But yeah, it really does so the change in the paths of both sides, doesn't it? The cricket in Namibia has been playing just as Bez was talking about, but into the World Cup and qualifying for the next World Cup and the, the consistency and quality that they're putting out and then what Hong Kong's been able to do, you know, the difficulty in only playing a couple of tournaments, you know, the ACC qualifier, but with so many things being called off and with no international cricket to the level of the League Two, you know, with the Challenge League having been postponed until now, it just shows the difference. But you know, it's, there's also a reason for that, that, the fact that they finished where they did in World Cricket League Division 2 in 2019 and the fact that Namibia hit them for almost 400 that last game. You know, it, it just shows that the, it wasn't necessarily all change after that, that maybe kind of both teams are on that path anyway. But you can only hope that, you know, Trent Johnson's now been there a couple of years and now he's actually getting to tour. Uh, for some, some, let's call them proper long-term uh, tours to this one to Africa as opposed to these short little distributions jointed to as he's had in the past with this squad so you can only hope that they they pull it together 
because there's a there's a lot of talent in the squad and, and in cricket in Hong Kong in general. Um, I just hope that they can bounce back from from these three matches, which were I don't know. I was hoping they weren't going to be as one sided as they they were, but I I feared that it would happen this way. The question I want to ask you is with. Obviously, the, the Challenge League leg coming up in Uganda. Uganda undefeated so far, five from five. Hong Kong are in second place, three wins out of five, having to do some chasing. But we haven't really heard of any other touring pre this tournament from any other sides. Do you think that, okay, yes, the results haven't been fantastic for them in this particular tour, how important is it for them to actually you know, get some time in the middle in Africa and, and playing some cricket ahead of the, the Challenge League, knowing that, yeah, they've got some pretty important matches coming up in the next week or so. Well, we'd like to think that's going to help. You know, Jersey have got to Uganda early and they're playing some trial games, practice games against U- uh, Uganda A side, which you think will also help Jersey, who, again, are just, I don't know, one of the more impressive teams in that at that level that for the number of players that they have at their disposal and the way they, they're able to, to pull that together and the performances they've had. You're unlucky to not proceed further in World Cup qualifiers. So that's another side there that I'd sort of pinpoint as a potential danger team for, for Hong Kong. I remember Hong Kong losing to Jersey in 2015, the World Cup qualifier, but then coming back to get them in, in, in 2019. But yeah, it's, it's a funny one because... What do we know? Well, I know we're probably going to answer questions about this in the mailbag section. You know, what do we know about what the future of 50-over cricket looks like? How much of what the rules have been put in place for promotion and relegation from Cricket World Cup League 2 and the Challenge League and below that, how much of that will actually prevail and go forward as, as was originally said? So who knows? I think from a Hong Kong point of view, all they can do is win as many as they can. It may mean finishing behind Uganda if Uganda continue on the trajectory that they've started but for them it's just to stay stay as high as possible in the challenge league because you never know we may well we're going to be looking at another 50 over men's structure in the future I guess for them it's just to get as many wins as they can in in the challenge league and then to what will be a very challenging T20 World Cup qualifier. Yeah, no, I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe trying to find a bit of a silver lining for, for Hong Kong. The thing about Namibia is that they're, they're the kind of team that will absolutely thrash a team that's a little bit lower than them in, in terms of skill. Uh, whereas, you know, as we've seen with their 50-50 win-loss record in the League 2, when they're playing against teams that are kind of a similar level, they'll, you know, they, they can, uh, like like how they, they thrashed Oman when uh, Craig Williams scored that big ton, and then the next game they got bowled out for 90 against the OE. Just they play slightly more kind of high-risk cricket which you know they can put on 300 plus regularly but they can also uh, lose a lot of wickets very quickly and and playing against a team like Hong Kong which maybe don't quite have the the cut through with their bowling means that the, the batting was able to make hay whereas Hong Kong playing in that challenge league against teams that are a slightly I guess a more, more similar kind of level to them you know they won't be um, they won't be struggling quite as much and, and guys like you know Yassim Murtaza will be able to feast on on some maybe a little bit weaker bowling than, than what Namibia was putting up you have to think too that yes Uganda were good in that first leg and they jagged a win against Namibia both in T20 cricket and one day cricket a 50 over game didn't have one day international status I don't think they're an unbeatable team at this level and so for Hong Kong that I think the inspiration and the motivation should just be look I'm sure Uganda are a due a defeat at some point it's just about capitalizing and beating some of the other opposition it's it's a tricky group and I know that you don't really know what you're going to get out of Kenya and, and Bermuda and even Italy Jersey you you kind of have a little bit more of an idea 
Italy have had a bit more of a turnover of players. So going between League A and League B of Challenge League, I think you know if Hong Kong were able to decide which one they would have wanted to be in, I think it is League B, and they've got the chance. And again, Uganda are at home, but you would think that they're susceptible to a defeat somewhere along the lines. It's whether or not Hong Kong can capitalise on it. Just running through that leg of Challenge League, I'm just going to get the dates. Uh, the 17th to the 27th, of June in Uganda and then they have one in Jersey in late July as well on the on the B side you guys are heading to Canada from the 24th of July to the 7th of August so those tournaments will run concurrently with A finishing off uh, in early December as well so looking forward to that in the framework of one day cricket in well the world of the ICC and, and cricket world cups and league structures and we'll talk about it in a little bit more depth in a second when we uh, open up the mailbag. Uh, we've had punters and patrons submit their questions. We gave our Emerging Cricket Patreon subscribers or patrons first dibs at the questions this week. So we'll start with Surf, who asks, given the recent explosion of cricket across the emerging countries, both men and women's games, and taking into account the ICC apathy, do you foresee a possibility of private companies' sponsors stepping in and arranging regular tournaments? This is, it's an interesting question. We've seen fair break happening, but we know that there's money being pumped in from you know, several directions. We saw the European T20 slam or sham or well, I can't remember all the all the names that we, we dubbed scam. that. Scam. I knew there was spam. <laughs> That's the Twitter feed. That, yeah. Uh, there's been a couple of attempts over the years. We haven't really seen anything substantial outside of Fairbreak, but I think Fairbreak's in its own little group. And But how do we want to attack this question do you want to start with this one nick you're uh got your hand up ready to go yeah well i mean as you say um do you foresee a possibility of private companies uh, stepping in well we- we've seen the reality of it with Fairbreak. I-, I guess long term the question there is where does the money come from and whether they can kind of make it a viable uh, business opportunity rather than a, a um, i think at the moment it is a lot of personal money and and you know love of the game which is you know which is great but in terms of it being Kind of a more sustainable model. Uh, that's that's more of a question. There's there is a faction uh, within the sort of associate community advocating for a, a, a split from the ICC for associate members because of um, you know just kind of the argument being that they're not served particularly well by the current structure. And uh, women's cricket uh, has recently seen some sort of similar rumblings at the moment with a lot of people kind of underwhelmed by the ICC's efforts to to grow the the women's game, especially on the test side of things. So. Yeah, I mean, private tournaments are one potential avenue for that or, or even private partnerships with, you know, for example, the, the USA is a case where a, a private company has come along and, and sort of pumped a lot of money in to, to try and get a return with the domestic league. So that's one other kind of avenue that, that might turn up. But yeah, that that is kind of the key question is if private companies are coming in, usually it's because they're expecting to make a return on investment. And, and how do you see that? I think honestly, I think Africa is quite possibly, you know, the, the future for that. And you know, as these are economies grow and and the market share grows if cricket can position itself within that growing market share i think it'll be in a a pretty good position Uh, nepal is another case of that where there is that enthusiasm and and, and it's an emerging economy Uh, we've talked about nigeria in the past and and their women's team doing quite well here is a a promising step and you know if, if that emerging economy can can get cricket sort of embedded within the the sports market um, I, I think cricket will be uh, all the richer for it. So, you know, if 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 I were a uh, a very well-off company 
looking to try and make a, a return in the long term, I'd be I'd be looking at the Africa region as, as somewhere to, to invest. Yeah, there's nothing really I can add to that, only to sort of bring the perspective that this had happened and was happening, you know, with the Cricket Canada signing a 25-year licence, I think it might have even been longer, <laughs> um, for the global T20 that, that ran and... It got the exposure, perhaps, that the uh, the owners were looking for, maybe not the return, but in the first couple of years, if you, you've got something that long, then you're not necessarily looking for a return straight away. And the, the same owners had signed the, the licence with Ireland, Scotland and, and the Netherlands for the, the Euro T20 Slam. And without what happened with COVID and everything around there, um, who knows what would have happened with that. All jokes aside about things being cancelled and postponed, you know, when the, when the news came about the Slam being postponed only kind of weeks before it was supposed to run you know it didn't leave us with a a confidence of how everything was being done but that money came from somewhere and you know there was someone interested in in associate cricket or at least cricket in associate nations then you know at at the time I think our biggest criticism was the number or lack of guaranteed spots for for associates from beyond those those nations but also within those nations that we want to make sure it's not just a cash grab of taking advantage of, of facilities or the advantage of partnering with a an associate member which would be cheaper than partnering perhaps with a with a, with a full member so i don't know we keep thinking and wondering about a post-covid world and what that looks like um, and hopefully that means of, of more entrepreneurial people thinking about similar ways of, of seeing opportunity in those nations and I think you encapsulated really well about where those companies could be looking and, and Africa is definitely one of those and we've already seen a billion dollars promised for cricket in in the USA so who knows where the, where the next one will be there's an ancient proverb in emerging cricket that you know no one's <laughs> you're not really getting into emerging cricket for the money unless you've got a whole ton of money to start with and you will end up with less money yeah how, how do you make a small fortune in associate cricket it's have a large fortune and then <laughs> yeah you, you, you just cop a little bit recouped again i mean i'm i'm hopeful i think that there would be a formula and i think there are ways that it could potentially happen and, and it would be profitable whether or not you kind of lean into the full member sphere and you get players from parts of the full member world to, to kind of be on on the ticket as well but somehow that the money is coming in and, and helping associate members that's one way it could potentially happen and there were murmurs of the likes of you know Yuvraj Singh in the European T20 sham and, and everything that surrounded that and you know that might have put bums on seats but I think deep down I think for it to be profitable but also viable it it needs to kind of work from a base model before you attract the likes of those players and and even if those players come in you would think they'd have to be pretty generous with their time and 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 probably from a financial standpoint as well to kind of make it realistic again you would love to see it but i just don't know how it would how it be achieved in a similar uh fashion yarn alexander uh a couple of questions here what do you think does more for women's cricket in associate nations? The fair break invitational or cross-regional tournaments like the Kabuka and could either concept realistically be transferred to men's cricket? He's got another question which we'll, uh, I'll pose to you guys in a moment. But it's an interesting question. We've just seen, I suppose, Germany and Brazil play in a different region and get accustomed to a, a new way of cricket in uh, a different part of the world. On the other side, something like fair break you're cross-pollinating a lot of talent from the full member and associate worlds. And I think a lot of players learn a lot from that competition. And 
I think the awareness of the game across both full member and associate members was markedly improved by something like the the Fair Break Invitational. I don't know which one I would put as more important. I think it's tough to say. I think international cricket is probably still the base of of the progress that is to be made on the women's side of things. Could it be realistically transferred to men's cricket? I'd love to see it. I'm actually keen to see what what your opinion on this would be between the pair of you before I sort of jump in on that one. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I sort of look at that and think, well, what what is it doing more? Like, what what are these things trying to? Well, what, what are we trying to achieve, and what are these tournaments trying to achieve? Like, the advantage of a fair break invitational is that it was paid 100% by a third party, and all the associate cricketers that participated was money that the associate members themselves or the players didn't have to pay. So there's a huge plus there already. Before we even talk about what the concept does for the players across regional tournaments you know we've talked about Kabuka in, in the past um, when Germany to at Oman and, and, and various other cross regions Uganda in, in Nepal about us actually getting a, a feel for where women's cricket is below the the layers of, of global qualifiers where a lot of these teams will have only have played against each other in in ICC tournaments so I think I, I I'm with you there Bez in the sense that I think international cricket is where it where it sits where the experience that has been provided to associate cricketers within the fair break invitational and exposure and i think for a lot of people watching it's almost normalized that these countries that people come from you know the, the fact that they've seen cricketers from vanuatu rwanda and nepal etc take wickets and just be playing on a, an even even playing field it maybe can't be really ignored but the more that i think about both of these i know it's not the question but I'm going to do a completely me thing and just say, just to me, it just shows how important, again, the ICC pulls finger and increases the number of teams in the in the World Cup because it shouldn't be down to associate members to be running tournaments like Quabuka to be getting these teams the experience. This should be complementing a global framework that is giving exposure to as many teams as possible. And yes, we're seeing the ICC go down the regional route for qualification in men's T20 cricket and it'll no doubt come in women's cricket across both formats as well, both white ball formats, which will might mean there are many cross-regional tournaments. However, there should be more opportunity for cross-regional matches by bringing more teams from those regions into a World Cup. So I think all of these are a benefit, but until we get bigger World Cups, I don't think we're really going to see the women's game move as far as it could. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Obviously, we, we all uh, support more teams in World Cups and, and uh, you know, various pathway tournaments as well. I think just looking, you know, just thinking about the, the, the idea of it being transferred to men's cricket, I mean, there are a number of, you know, for example, things like the Valletta Cup in Europe where um, these teams kind of in within the region play tournaments. And so I guess there is the possibility of inviting teams from, from other regions over. But then I guess, yeah, again, who pays for it and who pays for the flights and whatnot. Um, I mean, I'd love to see a men's quibooker. I think that would be a, a great idea and especially i don't know if brazil's men's team is is ready but um you know the german men's team and and a number of african men's teams i think that would be a a lot of fun um i guess looking at the the fair break side of things um as you kind of referred to bez it's it's helpful for the players individually in terms of training with you know top players and 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 you know establishing those relationships and you know learning from long-term pros but yeah national team tournaments i think still are kind of the backbone of, of especially for associate cricket maybe you could make the case in four member cricket that they're becoming less important but uh, even within that though having the option of professionalism for an associate board to say look you know if you play cricket you can actually make a living out of it i think that's that's incredibly valuable so if if we do see more kind of fair break or or other uh, associate tournaments that involve giving these players the opportunity to make a living in the sport, I think that will be very helpful for growing it. 
the rising tide floats all boats analogy that consistently gets thrown around is so important and even just talking to, to people through the development awards a week ago and talking to to Stuart Hook of Estonia it was so vital that their relationship with Finland was strong their relationship with other parts of Eastern Europe was strong in order to build the game not only from a developmental front but on the field as well you know they haven't really had much of an opportunity in times gone by where the women's team have been able to tour but they're the Estonian national women's team are touring Finland in, in the coming weeks and months. And it's just about having people close to you who you can work with in order to develop your own respective games. You mentioned the Valletta Cup, which is quite an important thing. Kubuka in the region, but now having the ability to, to bring in teams from other parts of the world. And that will ultimately be good for the sport. Uh, fair break on the men's side i'd love to see how it would happen and and just the relationships and and how you could kind of piece it all together and how it would be funded again it would it kind of leans back into the first question that we asked where you're probably needing a very rich person to just kind of see it happen like if we were to win the lotto between the three of us boys i think i'd probably put on a, a tournament akin to to that sort of level it's it's definitely interesting to to, to think about but yeah you, you would wonder uh, i don't know i mean we know what fair breaks vision is and why it was set up and, and why it was done it would be interesting to see if they were ever to to go down that other avenue in the game but again i think the smart money in terms of investment in all levels of cricket is on the women's side because there is just such an abundance of, of potential there and if you're you know one of the first sponsors or, or fundraisers involved in it i think there's certainly a path of setting yourself above and, and beyond other people in in that in that space so yeah i'm interested to see what's next and you know if there is this continued apathy towards you know the international governing body of the sport whether or not there are murmurs of breakaways or you know other tournaments that that, that seem to go away from the, the standard international model be interesting to see uh where are we going now Ah, Jan's second question. In your opinion, what are the all-time best individual batting and bowling performances by players of emerging cricket nations? I will start by saying that I don't know if anyone's going to take 10 wickets in a limited overs international like Mahabub Alam did against Mozambique in World Cricket League 5 May 2008. I can't see that being repeated, especially figures of 10 for 12, one maiden, and watching, you know, Paul Bin or Dustin Shakti, the great Shakti Gorchun, couldn't quite get in on the act as they bowled Mozambique out for 19. I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon, but on the batting side and there are so many names that we we can throw out here but i think i'm gonna put out a name that a man that we've had on the show and a man who's told his side of the story of it was uh kevin o'brien's hundred against england at the the 2011 cricket world cup a match winning century when ireland were dead and buried him and and the likes of the lower order of ireland him and alex cusack at times went ballistic just for him to pull that match out from where he did i don't think we'll see that anytime soon at a cricket world cup and and prim- that's primarily because you know we, we don't get a, a chance to see a lot of these teams actually play it 
a 50 over World Cup in its current format, but I think that's going to be pretty hard to top. But I'm sure you boys have a couple of uh, outstanding performances. You both clutch at your microphones in front of me. Unfortunately, Nick was uh, too slow there as he was typing away. Um, probably doing the same thing, was just making sure we get our numbers right. Speaking of having people on the show, Cole Kurtz, 158 against Bangladesh. Oh. 2015 World Cup up there as well. High score by an associate in World Cup. Um, I'm pretty sure high score by an associate against a full member anyway, but we'll have to um, check the tape on that. And Nixon, um, Lugnuts, and look, what left arm spinner wouldn't nominate Asif Karim's 3 for 7 off 8.2 overs for Kenya against Australia at the 2003 World Cup um, as the best performance from an emerging cricketer. Just bamboozled the Australian heroes of, the, of that World Cup. They went through undefeated 2003. So just remembering that match, you know, Kenya 174 for eight and Australia got the runs five wickets down, but uh, not before. How old was he at the time? Was he 30, 38, 39? Oh, yeah. been playing since the 80s, I think. Yeah, so he probably looked older than he was. <laughs> um, but no, I, that's just straight away for me though. Those two, Nick, what about you? Well, I mean, statistically, uh, Jeris Neyman, another uh, 2003 alum, uh, played at the 2003 uh, ICC World Cup for Namibia. He, <laughs> I think this has got to be the best individual performance in an international uh, first-class match, uh, as, as far as I can find. This, this was an Intercontinental Cup match uh, way back in 2008, Kenya playing against Namibia in Vintuk, uh, Namibia. Bowled out for 183 in their first innings. Kenya put up 229 in response. And then Namibia's second innings, Heri Sneeman, 230 runs, last man out of 201 deliveries, 11 sixes, 22 boundaries. The next highest score in that innings was 13. <laughs> and nobody else got to double figures, which amounts to 81.56% of the Namibian total uh, of 282, uh, which Namibia then managed to defend in the fourth innings, bowling out Kenya for 135 and winning by 101 runs. So uh, that uh, that double century uh, with, with nobody else um, getting past 13, I think is uh, pretty hard to top for mine. Makes Bannerman look pretty amateur, <laughs> really. I, one of those scorecards you, you kind of see in... In club cricket, you just kind of go, oh, my, on my cricket, oh, that's just, you know, par for the course in, in club cricket. This is happening in international cricket. I don't think we'll see anything like that anytime soon. And yeah, with the I Cup being no longer, we won't get the chance, unfortunately. So no bowlers, Nick? Yeah. No bowling performances? He's keeper. I don't, I don't believe in bowlers. <laughs> we like know it. Every day. <laughs> Okay, Andrew Nixon, the great Andrew Nixon. First of all, before we do get to his question, we actually got a question in regards to Andrew Nixon this week. Why Andrew Nixon hate Nepal? Um, Why does Andrew Nixon hate Nepal? I don't know. You'll have to ask him, unfortunately. But I'm sure he doesn't hate Nepal. It just No, he doesn't. He just bemoans, you know, everything that's going wrong in Nepali cricket that could so easily be going right. And I think that's a sentiment that is shared by many people from the outside. But Andrew Nixon's question to us this week, who's in your current all-time associate 11? Teams not including Bart King will not be accepted. Uh, I decided to go against Andrew (laughs) and I will be pleading for forgiveness instead of, uh, you know, adhering to his conditions of of a team because I don't think that's very fair, Andrew. Quickly running through my team, Karam Khan, Steve Ticolo, 
Ryan Tendiscata, Paris Kadka, uh, basically carried a, a batting lineup for 10 years. Kevin O'Brien, who we've mentioned. Muhammad Nabi before they turned full member. I've got Matty Cross as my wicketkeeper. He is now leading dismissals in one-day international cricket by associate wicketkeepers, hence my reasoning for him. Asif Karim, who you mentioned. I've got Bilal Khan. Uh, in the side too. And I've gone a little bit rogue here uh, with my two quick bowlers, kind of in the mould of a Bart King, but just because I'm I'm a little bit rebellious towards Nixon, I'm going to go against him there. I'm going to go Clem Gibson and Herbert Dorning, uh, two Argentine quicks who were there uh, when Argentine cricket was at arguably its strongest in the early 1900s, just doing some, some reading up of both of them. Uh, some quite fascinating stories, but there are certainly different directions you could go here. We kind of gave it about 20 minutes before we started recording tonight to put our 11s together, so not a whole lot of method or madness, at least I can sort of confess that from, from my perspective. I'm not sure about you boys. What have, who, who have you got? Who have you got on your uh, on your sheet of paper there? Well, first of all, I, I think um, you've got a 12th man, right? You've got to have Bart King mixing the drinks. Oh, Bart King is my 12th man. There you go, Andrew. <laughs> Got him, got him out of the DeLorean to mix yeah, the drinks. There we go, yeah. <laughs> Super sub. We're playing 2005 One Day International Rules. <laughs> well, I've gone more um, uh, playing a, a first-class match. Um, so I've got Ed Joyce opening up with Charles Amini Sr., who is kind of there as, as a proxy for the whole Amini family, who's just been a, an amazing sort of a contributing factor to PNG cricket over the, uh, the, over the decades. Um, I think Charles Amini Sr.'s... Father and grandfather both played for PNG. You know, they've just been a, a great dynasty of cricket in the region. Uh, coming at number three, Steve Tocolo, uh, probably the best player that Kenya's ever produced. Ryan Tendiskata slotting in at number four. Uh, no, needs no introduction. I've, gone, I've been, a, been a bit cheeky and I've selected um, Douglas Jardine at number five. <laughs> play, play, he, Scotland eligible. Um, grew, up, grew up in Scotland. His, his family was Scottish. But uh, yes, uh, playing as more or less a, a specialist captain to um to come up with some some nasty tactics to to get out whoever we're playing against number six is the legendary Mexican all rounder Claude Butlin uh, big shout out to Craig White uh, who, who's always plugging Claude in uh, <laughs> on on Twitter and, and in various articles and uh, I assume in his book on Mexican cricket uh, whenever that comes out I'll be very interested to read that uh, number seven I've got Freddie Clocker Danish wicketkeeper long serving uh, a batter as well coming in at number eight I've got John Davison playing as a specialist spinner huge and uh, you know obviously very handy with the bat coming in at number 8 can uh, yeah, he's only polished off one of the fastest hundreds in World <laughs> Cup history and Nick's just slotting him in at number 8 well you yeah, know 6 down you know you, you, you could keep someone in reserve like that to uh, you know to really take it to the opposition when, when you're on top uh, and then Bart King coming at number 9 he was actually a pretty handy bat uh, by all accounts back in the day um, so I've got a pretty deep batting lineup. Uh, Ole Mortensen another Dane big tall fast bowler played a lot of county cricket in I think in the sort of 80s uh, and uh, number 11 cast posthuma very famous Dutch left arm quick uh, around the sort of turn of the century played a few matches with WG Grace uh, so that should give you some indication of his uh, sort of box office potential and uh, my number 12 uh, my 12th man is Frank Nussbuga the evergreen oh, eternal the eternal the man will live forever yeah he's uh, into his 40s he's been playing since the sort of mid 90s I think so uh, still going strong the uh, Ugandan slash uh, East African spinner uh, yeah so I'm, I'm pretty happy with that team who have you got Tim 
Oh, geez. Oh, you've blown me away with some of those, Nicholas. Um, well, Kyle Kurtzer, I think, has to be there in opening innings, mm. and this could be in... You, you said yours was first class. Mine's probably a 50-over team, but as we go on, we can see that uh, play 50 or T20 cricket here. Steve Ticolo, again, legend. Karim Khan, legend. Tennis Carter, again, he's at number four. Number five, I'm... My point of difference here, Dermot Reeve will be captaining the side. Born, raised Hong Kong, played for Hong Kong before he moved to the UK and, of course, went on to play, well, I was going to say all formats, all formats at the time in a World Cup final for, for England in 1992, was a was known as an inspirational leader in his time in, in Warwickshire and I think uh, it'd be great to um, lead this time-bending side. Um, Kevin O'Brien in at number six. Um, I just think his feats can't be ignored there. Seven. Now, I'm, I'm selecting this team of everyone playing at their absolute best. And when this guy played associate cricket, he wasn't necessarily at the, the right end of his career. But Geraint Jones will uh, take the gloves and also handy with the bat down there at number seven. And then come two of the sort of modern greats, Muhammad Nabi at number eight and Rashid Khan at number nine. Um, so much was done in their time at as associates, and I couldn't leave him out. Bart King only because I don't want to get Nixon angry. Uh, and 11, and I want to say that I put his name in before Daniel put him in, in his team, is Bilal Khan. Just look at his numbers in World Cup League 2, and maybe you haven't seen the potential that he has in, in T20 cricket and be shown, but over the last half decade, I think he's been the leading fast bowler in emerging cricket. So that is my 11, and who was also very close to my 12 and maybe we can have him cutting the oranges is Sandeep Lamichani I don't know if he'd like that <laughs> sitting on the bench <laughs> I, hasn't, you know, I, I was going to say the same thing uh, but you know it keeps him keen and that team bats basically all the way to 9-0 Bart King could also swing the willow and there's fast bowling and, and spin bowling options so I'm, I'm pretty happy with that side yeah I like Dermot Reeve Hong Kong's most capped test player yes <laughs> It will be interesting to see how far Sandy can go. I think by the time he finishes, he's probably a nailed-on starter in, in anyone's associate 11. But I think that's yeah, three pretty strong sides, given we gave ourselves about 20 minutes to, to put that all together as we were just sat here talking other forms of nonsense. So thank you for the question, uh, Andrew. And once again, thank you for your continued support via Patreon. Uh, Shaunak. One of our contributors, Shaunak Saka, upon finding out that we were having a mailbag and that we'd all be in the same place, wanted to ask about hybrid pitches. And, and Tim, given your position in, in Vanuatu, I think you are an expert in this. I mean, I'm, I know you're not the curator or anything, but you know, you've know you got one there at your disposal at the VCA. Have there been more installed in Vanuatu and is there an appetite from other associates to do the same? I think there was one being put in somewhere else. I seem to remember a news story. Well, I can... I can- answer both questions uh well there's only one in vanuatu that's on our number one uh, vanuatu cricket ground field um i'd love to put more in but that's just a, a money thing and also to make sure that it gets the the best use so as we look to develop grounds on the islands of tanna and santo that it would be something i would look at down the line probably not initially because it'd be maybe more developmental cricket early on those those grounds but personally i, I love the concepts i think they give as much of a 
genuine experience of a, of a turf wicket but without the cost requirement the training uh, and also the space as well as something that can't be forgotten either when a lot of grounds that you, you're sort of fighting with space restrictions and if you had a, a wicket block you may not be able to have international matches out of anywhere except on the, the pitch in the middle just because of the, the, the size uh, issues are, are around that i was in the gabba factory only a week and a half ago so this is a timely question shonak thank you there were five there rolled up and ready to be sent to the united states um Listening. yeah so both to the, the states of texas and and california and that is through a developing relationship that they have with major league cricket rather than usa cricket themselves but i think that's great news for the game in the usa because again great concept in terms of getting this a pitch down for those that don't know what we're talking about so almost like your normal synthetic wicket concrete wicket probably laid a little bit lower um, but instead of having green astroturf on top you have straw colored astroturf and the actual grass is about two inches long as opposed to the sort of short shaved green grass that you'd have on a on an astroturf wicket and on top of that, you put a ton and a half, or up to two tons of of clay um, from. Well, in Vanuatu we have SCG clay, but that would depend on on the various uh, weather conditions that you have, um, trying to match your clay content to how humid or how wet it is. And so from that, you water, you, you spray a PVC glue, a watered down PVC glue mixture, and you basically roll it, and you've got a wicket. And when it gets worn away, you can either brush it around and sort of fill in your footmarks or you can put more clay down i'll send you more clay than you need and then you water it you roll it and you can have a wicket in hours as opposed to in weeks of, of having to roll down a base or trying to repair a wicket you don't have to worry about grass needing to be re-sown and and um and roots coming out so yeah i think you'd liken it to a subcontinental wicket in that it dries out probably quicker just because you don't have the the thickness of clay but if you look over to Ireland, where they have a relationship with a different provider, they do a different hybrid where they have a turf wicket, but it's actually got sewn through it a bit like modern day um, high class football pitches, Millennium Stadium and the like, that they have synthetic grass um, actually sewn in certain intervals trying to strengthen the base of the grass itself. So whilst I'd call that hybrid, it's nothing like the hybrid that, uh, that Gabba provide and they're getting inquiries from from around the world but especially america at the moment and personally i think it's the future of kind of growing the game in, in emerging nations sounds it um, they're going to put up wickets in that time and negating a lot of the the threats that the climate has on on cricket and, and putting up matches it's it's definitely the way forward especially if you know from a development level juniors going up in into to senior cricket and yeah it's been approved to be used in international play so i think you know play on at this point um in order to get matches up and running and, and getting as much cricket as we can uh Two or three more questions, all coming from Erajan Doju via Twitter. Thank you very much for, for asking questions. I could probably cover the first one. Is there any chance of resumption of uh, a new ICC Intercontinental Cup for Associate Nations with one-day international status? Is anyone from the ICC chirping in on this? It, at this stage, it looks dead in the water. 
uh, it has been dead since 2017. I think we can move on. The last we heard was that they'd put out sort of uh, nominations of interest really from from associate members. Four or five came back and said they were keen, but uh, from there there was there was nothing really uh, on towards what it looks like. There might be uncoupling test match and full member status as well, which kind of plays into all of that. A couple of countries were keen. There are some great stories around from the likes of PDP and, and others who, who have talked to, to people in the past about the I Cup and what it could bring, but yeah, at this stage, it doesn't look like it's happening. Uh, and then what's the deal with Super League, essentially? Uh, is the Cricket World Cup Super League cancelled for next edition? Uh, the short answer is yes to that. What is the status of the Netherlands? We'll get to that. Uh, ICC League 2 will be removed, or would it contain eight teams with two from, say, the Challenge League and the Netherlands, perhaps? We are not too sure. We know that the Super League is gone. And that's about as far as we can really go with this. We've heard conflicting reports about who keeps and who loses one-day international status by virtue of finishing places in League 2. And as a result, you know, Challenge League underneath that. We're going to have to wait until, well, roughly this time next year at the end of this cycle, what happens unless we kind of hear news before it. Unless anyone else really wants to chime in with anything here or anyone wants to predict what's going to happen in the next cycle. I mean, the only thing I would really add is that hopefully they keep this structure because it was something that they arrived at with a lot of consultation with the associate members themselves and you know, Richard Doan's talked about this um, and the amount of effort that's gone into it and the fact that it provides a bit more stability to teams that can kind of predict that they will get you know 36 matches at the League 2 level and they can plan around that and you know hire staff and, and training and physios and, and all of that kind of stuff and, and we've seen it you know the fact that they do have that level of stability has helped teams like Namibia to really sort of go up a gear and even the thing that Doan talked about with um, with the Challenge League was that it's scalable and that you can keep adding sort of groups of six as, as teams get stronger and, and I think that's a really that kind of almost modular way of looking at pathway structures I think is really good so yeah there's a lot of potential for this structure and, and I feel like it would be a shame if they did get rid of it but you know we've seen a lot of good ideas at the ICC get tossed in the bin so <laughs> I wouldn't be too sure. Yeah, can I agree with that? You know, we go back to what the World Cricket League structure looked like pre-2015 when the, the top two teams of that competition, who were Ireland and Afghanistan at the time, got automatic spot in a 14-team World Cup. And now we don't know anything about what the qualification will look like for 2028 and beyond. Well, beyond the fact that rankings are going to be used to a certain level and and then there'll be a qualifier below that, which kind of takes away the the excitement around what the World Cricket League was. I guess at the time, you know, there were two fewer full members and that meant that uh, there were there were fewer full members to sort of find spots for. But um, yeah, I can only hope they, they come up with something that not only caters to the, the top end of the the associate teams but it's also the, the, the bottom level full members that are going to lose out and having no super league because with no super league that means no guaranteed matches against certain full members and we've already heard the icc chair talk about how there's going to be less time in the calendar for longer series and that will also mean there's less time in the calendar for smaller full members to play against larger full members so i can only hope that any 
future 50 over structure which may mean that ICC are putting the bill for some of this but look to integrate some of those those smaller full members which may not have the TV dollars for a a series say Ireland against Namibia that they would be sort of for Ireland against Pakistan but will actually maintain some consistent quality cricket for them and then as we go further down the down the ladder as you said Nick and looking at them scaling it up um, basically the 50 over cricket involves the top 32 nations at the moment I I hope that will increase but I, I fear as we look into a crystal ball where t20 cricket has more and more focus on it from an international point of view from an icc perspective i I fear that won't happen and we'll look at the t20 structures maintaining a bigger spot in the calendar now that we're looking at a 20 team men's t20 world cup every two years as opposed to the smaller event that we have at the moment Uh, yeah i think even going higher up in terms of full member cricket you've got a nine-team world test championship three of the full members aren't even participating in that if you were to bring something even close to an intercontinental cup, it'll have to be something along the lines of using those bottom three full member nations and perhaps the teams that are sort of nominated for the I Cup to almost play in a, in a second tier of first class cricket. I don't think we'd ever see it. It'd be nice. Uh, and then looking at the way the structure is, I bemoan the fact that the one time that we had Super League and the one time that One Day International Cricket was relevant for all the full members plus the Netherlands, was that you've got a really good competition that's been curtailed by COVID and no one really bought into the concept of Super League. I don't know if it was promoted properly in the first place or COVID just meant that everyone was out of whack and we're all making up matches now, but they've already consigned to the fact that they're not going to run Super League in the next cycle. And this cycle hasn't finished yet. You know, we could see a really good finish to that bubble of the top eight of who qualifies and who doesn't automatically for the World Cup, who has to go through the World Cup qualifier. Like South Africa right now could well play in the Cricket World Cup qualifier next year. And for, for someone like them, that's unheard of. And just having the tiered system meritocratic where you reward teams who play well in a say over a year or over two years like the old world cricket leagues used to do i'd love if we if we went to a system like that where say we did have a 12 team super league and yes in the first instance the netherlands get bumped down but then you have two go up two go down and you have 12 teams in that league eight teams in what is essentially a league two and then either a 10 team challenge league or two groups of five for the challenge league and then working out the movements calendar year upon calendar year or in regards to World Cup cycles. I think that would be the best way to go about it. But then you also need to work out how teams are being entered into the system by virtue of their T20 international ranking because that's the only way you can gauge teams at the moment because there is not enough 50 over cricket and there's no status for for ranking points to be distributed and gained and lost. So these are the questions that the ICC need to answer for the next cycle. And we sit here waiting to find out what it's going to be. But ultimately, you know, we're left in the dark as as much as you know everyone around asking the questions are and then you know talking to a couple of people and in regards to the the teams coming sixth and seventh in league two there was talk that they would lose their one day international status but have heard rumors around the traps that due to some of the extenuating circumstances that might not happen either and they might keep their status but what happens to the challenge league teams who finish top of their respective groups and their potential status in a qualifier do we get two more teams with one day international status we don't know and then we don't know what that status actually entails from an icc funding standpoint how that money split around so all of these problems sort of intertwine with each other boys thank you so much for recording here in on my dining room table here this week on the emerging pod 
Uh, we've talked at length about cricket. We're about to all tuck into some uh, spaghetti bolognese uh, with thanks thanks to, to Mel as well as we sip on a couple of alcoholic beverages. It's so great to have you boys right in front of me talking instead of uh, Zooming. You didn't have to worry about Nick freezing or losing Tim to Vanuatu internet. Or, you know, I've, I've got to say on my end, I'm not exactly particularly great either, but managed to get through relatively scot-free. Thanks for joining us, uh, everyone around. And yeah, boys, so good to have you here in front of me. Great to be here, Bez. And yeah, when we say we're having spaghetti bolognese, it is uh, 9.35 p.m. and we've uh, gone over time again. So we're enjoying a... Everyone, a, a, a... everyone in the house is hungry, including <laughs> myself. So we're <laughs> going to sign out quickly here. Uh, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket wherever you are around the world on your respective platforms. Emergentcreek.com is the place for all your news. And as you guys know, the podcast is available just about everywhere uh, where you listen to all of your audio content. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll speak to you next week.